Today's text is Revelation 6. That's on page 1,919 of your pew Bibles. Now hear God's word from Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages? And six pounds of barley for a day's wages? And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given a power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord? How long, Sovereign Lord? How, How long, long, Sovereign Lord, holy and, and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each one of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Fall on us and hide us! Fall on us and hide us! Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come. And who, who can, can stand? stand? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We continue to uh, work our way through the book of Revelation. We only had time to read chapter 6 this morning, but uh, chapters 6 and 7 really go together. Um, we'll be touching on chapter 7 as well today, but I encourage you to read it in its uh, entirety sometime today. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, as we've been delving into the book of Revelation over these past number of weeks, I've heard from more than a, a few of us, <clears throat> things like this. You know, I've never even read the book of, of Revelation before. And, and that's somewhat convicting to me. It tells me that perhaps as leaders in the church, we haven't done a very good job of, of teaching what this book is all about. I suppose it's been easier to avoid. It's always that way, right? It's easy to avoid the difficult stuff. So why should we read it? Well, one reason is because it's a part of God's Word. It's a part of God's Word that's intended for the good of the church, for the good of His people. If that's not enough of a reason, I heard another reason a while back. Somebody once asked me, well, what if you were to go to heaven one day and you were at a party and you met John and he were to ask you, so, how'd you like my book? What would it be like if you had to say, I've never read it. It was too weird. But seriously, one of the reasons people often give for never reading the book of Revelation is just that. They say, it's just too weird for me. They don't understand all of the imagery. Children of the 70s perhaps feel like it's another bad acid trip. And I have to admit that when we get to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, things do get a little bit strange. So what I'd like to try to do with you this morning is just perhaps slow things down a bit. And let's work our way through what is here. And this may take a little time, so just buckle your seatbelts. One important thing to note about Revelation 6 is that it begins with the Lamb. This is the same Lamb that we met back in chapter 5 last week. There the Lamb was declared worthy. Worthy to take up the scroll and to open its seals. Worthy because He has triumphed. Worthy because with His blood... He purchased men, <clears throat> men for God. But you may have wondered about <clears throat> what the worshipers say next in that text. <clears throat> because they sing or proclaim that the Lamb is worthy to receive. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. In other words, He's worthy to receive all of these things from worshipers, from people like us. Why worthy to receive? What do we have that we can offer to the Lamb? <clears throat> the answer is why He is worthy is because He has proven Himself worthy. Remember again how we said that, that the book of Revelation really doesn't contain anything tremendously new, but rather it repeats in new and fresh ways what's already been said elsewhere in the Bible. Well, think here of Philippians chapter 2. 
There we're told that Jesus possessed everything that the Heavenly Father possessed. But he did not consider all of those things. He did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, something to be grasped. But rather, he let all of that go. He opened his hands and let it go. He instead took on the nature of a human being, the nature of a slave. Actually, he took on the nature of a condemned criminal. And he did all of this, why? Because he was God. And this was a godlike thing to do. It was godlike to let all of that go. In other words, Jesus proved himself to be in lockstep with the Father because he was God. He inherited wisdom and strength and wealth and honor and glory and praise. And because he was God, he gave it all up. He gave it all up to purchase men for God with his own blood. And therefore, in Revelation 5, all the creatures sing that Jesus is worthy. He's worthy to receive from us all of these things again. Why? Because we know exactly what Jesus will do with them, don't we? He will use them for our good. He will use them for the good of his creation, for the good of all of his creatures. Think of taxes, right? Taxes are something that we give to our leaders, the leaders of the world. And what we're saying here is that Jesus is even worthy of our taxes. Why? Because we know how he will use those things. Not for his own honor and glory, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the people that he reigns over. The lamb that was slain is worthy. He is worthy to receive all these things because Jesus is the only one that we know who truly prays, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants that so much for our sake and for God's sake that he actually lives it out. He is the one who will come to bring God's will, God's kingdom down to earth. He is worthy. That's the Jesus, that's the Lamb, who we see first here in chapter 6. Now, in chapter 6, as we move forward, this Lamb begins to open the scroll. Quick review, what's the scroll? The scroll is the establishment of God's kingdom here on the earth. But notice, what Jesus is doing here is he's opening the seals that are actually on the outside of the scroll. You have to open the seals before you can get to what's inside the scroll. In other words, what we find in these two chapters is not the content of the scroll, it's not what's inside the scroll, it's that which accompanies the establishment or the coming of God's kingdom here on the earth. And so it's something that we might just fly past and overlook, but I think one of the most powerful images in this text is that Jesus opens this scroll one seal at a time. 
You might say that he opens this scroll gently. Why? Because if he were to open it too fast, if the kingdom were to come in all of its completeness, suddenly that kingdom would overwhelm us. It would destroy us. This is God's righteous kingdom that we are talking about here. And the world we live in is an unrighteous world. In fact, we are unrighteous people apart from Christ. So to reveal that kingdom all at once and suddenly it would overwhelm us. In fact, just opening the seals begins to spark all sorts of judgments as God draws near with his kingdom. Warning judgments are ignited that actually grow in intensity. These judgments come in the form of of seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. And as we heard in the Bible Project video, the very first week of this series, they work sort of like nesting dolls. That is, as you begin to open the seals, you get to the seventh seal, and you find not that it's time to open the scroll, but instead you find seven trumpets contained in that seal. And then you get to the seventh trumpet, and you find, again, not the opening of the seal, but you find seven bowls that are included in that last trumpet. The seals ignite God's judgment, and that intensity increases of the judgment. The first judgments that come with the seals, they impact one-third of the earth, or one-fourth of the earth, excuse me. The judgments that come with the trumpets ignite a fourth of the earth, or a third of the earth, excuse me. They go from a fourth to a third, and finally in the bowls, you get judgments that are without limit. The intensity increases as the kingdom of God draws nearer. But like I said, the Lamb opens them gently, one at a time. Remember, the one with the power to judge, the one who is worthy to open the seals, he knows how to use that power. He uses it for us. He uses it in service to God, never against us, never against God. But that doesn't mean his judgments aren't real, that they are not serious and sobering. So, before we look at these seals individually, Let's look at them in sum, all right? And again, the first thing that we see when we do that is that John is, again, not trying to be strange and unique, but rather he's drawing on other passages of Scripture that we are probably familiar with. Specifically here, think of Jesus in the Gospels, giving what's called his Olivet Discourse. You find that in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and passages like that. To summarize... His disciples asked Jesus for signs of the end. And Jesus' response is that the end is not yet, but then he gives a number of signs so that we all might be prepared. He says that there will be wars, international strife, earthquakes, famine, persecutions, eclipse of sun and moon, and all sorts of things like that that spell the undoing of creation. These are the very signs that we actually find here in Revelation 6 in the opening of the seals. And what Jesus says about these signs in the Gospels is this. These are the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, just as a new baby that's eagerly anticipated comes also with great pain, so too the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of righteousness is coming. We all anticipate it eagerly, but it also comes into an unrighteous world, and so there is pain, there is agony that accompanies it. To spin off what I said just a few weeks ago, it's like, it's like a shooting star, right? A shooting star is not actually a star, is it? It's just a little particle of dust or stone or metal But when it enters our atmosphere at the speed that it does and it begins to rub up against other particles in our atmosphere, sparks begin to fly. That's the picture of God's coming kingdom. When the righteousness of God bumps up against our own unrighteousness and the unrighteousness of our world, when God's righteousness meets with resistance, sparks begin to fly. Judgments occur to remove that resistance. That resistance cannot stand. In other words, Revelation 6 is proclaiming the same message that Jesus proclaimed in the Gospels. That when you see the sparks, when you see and witness the judgments, remember the kingdom is near. Remember that Jesus is coming, that God is coming. Remember that he is the God who is and who was and who is to come. Remember that nothing can slow his advance, and so make sure, what? That you are ready. Because the sparks will fly against all unrighteousness. That includes the unrighteousness in my own life. What Revelation does do uniquely from the Gospels is it gives a few more examples of what we ought to be on the lookout for. And friends, what we see here in Revelation 6, I think, really ought to scare us a little bit. Not because it's so strange, not because we read about horses and riders with swords and blood and all of that sort of thing, not because it's so strange, but actually because it's so familiar. That's why we ought to be scared. Because what is here in chapters 6 and 7 of Revelation is oh so familiar. Let's look at these seals a little more specifically. When you look at the first four seals, think of Rome. Okay? Think of Rome itself in John's day. Rome preached a very particular message, and it proclaimed a certain line of propaganda. This is basically what Rome preached, that power equals peace. Power leads to peace. And peace leads to improved quality of life for all of the citizens of Rome. Okay? It was the Pax Romana, right? It was how Rome advertised itself. Advertised itself really to all of its, enemy, all of its enemies. It was, join the peace of Rome. Okay? You would rather join now than have us beat you down and shed your blood. But either way, you will become a part of Rome. And when you do... You'll benefit from the peace of Rome through your quality of life. You see, their propaganda was this. If you have the power to make war, then by that power, you can provide peace for people. It was sort of this message that 
we can bring in, if not the kingdom of God, something very, very similar, and we can do it by power. Get on board. Now, if you think about that message, what you find, when you look again at the four horsemen, is God's judgment on that very premise. God's judgment on human arrogance and rebellion. Let's look. The first horseman to come is riding a horse of war, holds a bow in his hand. He wears a crown and is bent on conquest, we're told. He's a picture of the power that the Romans worship. Now, many have have related this rider. In fact, uh, Eugene Peterson does in the book that we're studying, relates this rider to Christ. There's good reason for that. That's because Christ also appears later in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, also riding a white horse. I don't think that's actually the way to go here. This rider comes as a package deal with the three other riders that will come soon after him, and all of them represent evil and judgment. But what we are supposed to see is that this white rider comes as an impersonator of the real Jesus. For instance, he says he comes as an overcomer, which is a big word in Revelation. But unlike the lamb who overcomes or who conquers by being slain, this overcomer comes with a bow, an instrument of war. And therefore, we take this rider to be one who masquerades as an angel of light. He preaches victory through power. He preaches the message of Rome, the gospel of Rome. And look what comes on the heels of this warrior. Not the promised peace of Rome, right? But instead what comes is war, strife, and rebellion. The second horse takes peace from the earth. He doesn't bring it. And then the third horse brings not prosperity, the prosperity of of the Pax Romana, no, but he brings famine instead. And the rider is holding a pair of scales, which, which were instruments of commerce. And this rider brings economic hardship. This isn't, any fa- this isn't just any famine that we read about here, right? We, we heard the words. The very particular kind of famine that you read about in verse 6, a quart of wheat or a couple of pounds of wheat for a day's wages. But don't damage the oil and the wine. What's that all about? Well, friends, a family could not survive on a quart of wheat for a day's wage. Those those were starvation diets. This is a famine in which the food staples are selling at hugely inflated prices, 8 to 16 times what what they normally cost, while the luxuries of life, the oil and the wine, those things remain affordable. Okay? How does something like that happen? Well, this actually happened in Rome at this time. In fact, there was such a demand in Rome and in the wealthier provinces around Rome, such a demand for wine and the finer things of life, that there came a time when there wasn't actually enough wheat. Rome had to import just about everything that it consumed, okay? It came from other places. And of course, if you were supplying Rome with things, you would want to supply them with the things that that had sort of a higher profit margin, right? 
just like today. And those are the luxury items. Those are what carried the higher profit margin. And so everybody planted vineyards and they were supplying Rome with all of its wine. And it got so bad that one of their emperors, Domitian, actually had to, to say no more. He began to have vineyards pulled up and told people that they could not plant vineyards anymore, but they had to begin planting wheat and corn and barley so that people could eat. See, friends, we don't think this kind of thing can happen, but it actually does happen. A few years ago when I was able to travel to Mozambique with, with some folks from this congregation, we got to Zimbabwe and we stayed with some of the people in the church there. And uh, I still have um, uh, something from that trip. It's a, it's a billion dollar bill. I used to carry it around in my Bible just to remember that trip. It was a billion-dollar bill. Okay? Inflation had risen at such an incredible rate that instead of singles and fives in their wallets, people had billion-dollar bills in their wallets. Now think about that. I talked to some of the people we were staying with, and what they said was, you know, it was great when it came time to pay our mortgages, because we maybe owed 100000 150000 on our houses, okay? And we could whip out a billion-dollar bill, and there would be change left. Our mortgage was paid for. The house was ours. But then we went to the grocery store, and we whipped out our billion-dollar bills, and we couldn't, couldn't even buy a loaf of bread. That's the kind of thing that was going on in Rome. The people who could afford the luxuries of life, they could still afford the barley, and the wheat. But it was the regular people, the people who worked the fields, the people who supplied Rome with all these luxuries that couldn't afford to live any longer. It may just sound like, well, this is supply and demand to us. This isn't supply and demand. This was evil. This was evil. And God names it so. This is the judgment that comes with the black horse. Rather than prosperity for all that Rome proclaimed, it was starvation. The fourth horse then follows the third, not with health and fitness and quality of life, but rather with plague and pestilence and death. The rider kills with the sword and Hades follows behind and swallows up the dead. Now, something else we should notice about these first four seals is that the four horsemen are called forth by the four living creatures. Okay? Remember the four living creatures? They were the ones who were surrounding God's throne back in chapter 4. They're at the very center of the universe. They're worshiping God all the time. They're the representatives of God's creation. Now, why would the representatives of God's creation be calling forth judgments on humankind, a part of God's creation? Well, again, we mentioned this before, but it probably goes back to Romans chapter 8. That's where Paul says that the whole creation is groaning and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. The creation groans to be made new again. It groans under the weight of human sin. 
It groans when it sees 5% of humanity using 95% of its resources and 95% having nearly nothing. And so the representatives of creation, they call forth judgments on human beings so that the whole thing can be set right again. So that there can be a resetting, a recalibrating back in tune with what's at the center, the one who sits on the throne. And friends, it's important to see that we're not talking about vengeance here when we're talking about the judgments that the four living creatures call forth. This isn't a creation that's lashing out in anger. This is a creation that that simply is allowing us to suffer the consequences of our own sin so that we will recognize those things and change our ways before it's too late. And friends, this is the worst kind of punishment of all. The worst of all of God's punishments is when he simply allows us to lie in in the beds that we have made for ourselves. When the punishment simply fits the crime. John Ortberg tells a little story about a man named David Hagler. Hagler was out on the road one day in his little red sports car and he was on his way to work when he was pulled over by a police officer for speeding. And Hagler protested that really he was going no faster than the speed limit, he was going no faster than anyone else in traffic, there were plenty of cars going faster than him, he was really a very careful driver. It got him nowhere. And he believed that in spite of all his protests, when the police officer gave him a ticket, he thought it was just because of the car that he was driving. He thought the whole thing was tremendously unfair, but he figured that was pretty much the end of it. A couple of months later, Hagler was umping a softball game and who should be the very first batter up to the plate but the police officer who gave him that ticket. Only now the police officer's spirit was a little changed. And he looked meekly at Hagler and he said, So, uh, how did that thing with the ticket turn out? Hagler simply replied, You better swing at everything. Friends, that's punishment that fits the crime. Timely, measured, it's deserved. And it doesn't happen that way very often, does it? And that's purely because of God's grace. You know, I often hear people laugh off things like, like global warming and forever chemicals that poison drinking water and, and other signs that the creation is under the strain of evil. Sort of laugh it off as if it's, you know, some great conspiracy to take away our freedoms. And I suppose it might be some great conspiracy. I don't really know. But it could also be Revelation 6. Where the creation is simply warning us. Stop. The king is coming. He's just around the corner. Revelation 6 announces that judgments are coming that will indeed fit the crime. And when that day comes, the question will be, who can stand? Who can stand? 
The answer, of course, is no one. But if we jump ahead to seal number six, that's the question that gets asked by all of those who have sort of bought into the the lie of Rome. The lie that, you know, power in the hands of the right person, the right group, that'll make the world right again. As the creation begins to come undone in this seal, those people, those very people, ask the mountains for mercy. Cover us rather than allow us to face the one who sits on the throne. And the wrath of the Lamb and the truth that is coming. Who can stand? As I said, the answer is no one, but yet there is another answer that comes in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is kind of an interlude between the 6th and the 7th seal. And that question is the head of it, who can stand? And the answer returns, those who bear the seal of God on their foreheads. Then comes sort of the big reveal, the move that bus moment of chapter 7. And it's also one of those hearing and seeing deals like like we had with the lamb back in chapter 5, you know, where John hears the the lamb or the line of the tribe of Judah. He turns and he sees the lamb. Well, here we have a very similar thing. Who are those who bear the seal of God? Well, John hears a crowd of 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. But when he turns to see them, what he sees is a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. What's the numbering thing all about? Why the 144,000? Is that actually how many people are going to be in heaven? No. If you go back to the Old Testament, when were people numbered? They were numbered before it was time to go to war. That was how you numbered your army and you realized how many, how many fighting men you actually had. Well, here, John hears of the great army of God, the great army of Israel, but when he turns, he sees not 144,000, but he sees this countless army of God's people from every nation. But in truth, they don't look very much like an army. In chapter 7, 13, one of the elders asks, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? In other words, they don't look like an army. And John gives this great answer. He says, sir, you know. That was the answer I always wanted to give in college calculus. Verhulst, what's the answer? Sir, you know. But the elder does know. These are the martyrs. The great army of God is made up not of soldiers, but of martyrs. They fight not with swords, but by offering up their own lives. They are the ones who have not been, or who have not swallowed the power lies of Rome. These are the disciples of the Lamb who was slain. Now, let's go back 
for just a moment. You probably noticed we skipped over the fifth seal. The fifth seal reveals to us the souls of the martyrs that are under the altar. And they're crying out, how long, sovereign Lord? How long until you bring justice? How long till you bring vindication? How long until you reveal who is really in the right? How long until you make clear what truth this world is really built upon? Is it built upon the violence of Rome or is it built upon the self-sacrifice of the Lamb? Which one is it? How long, Lord? And the answer comes back and it's striking because we all want to hear it's going to happen soon. And what we hear instead is just a little while longer. Because there are still more people who have to die. A couple of things we want to mark about this notion of the martyrs. First, there is a connection, a strong connection in the book of Revelation and right here between, the, between martyrdom and the establishment of God's kingdom. God's kingdom does not come via the violence of war. God's kingdom comes via the faithful witness to the Lamb. The word witness and martyr, you probably know this in the Greek, they're actually the very same word. That's how closely these two things are related. It's through witness, it's through martyrdom that the coming kingdom comes. Second thing, God's seal, which I take to be the seal of baptism, God's seal on our foreheads is a mark that protects us as we fight God's battles in this world. But note that while that seal protects us, it does not prevent suffering or even martyrdom. I like how Eugene Peterson put it in his book. He says, we are protected from the God-separating effects of evil even as we experience the suffering caused by evil. In other words, we're sealed with the mark of God or when we're sealed with that mark, evil will never be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That cannot happen. And yet we are not promised that we will not suffer. Turns out that that little children's prayer that we all learned before it was time to go to bed, that prayer had it right. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That could happen. We still suffer evil as believers, but that evil can never ultimately separate us from God. Verse 14 of chapter 7, the elder says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have come out of the great tribulation. It does not say these are the ones who escaped the tribulation. Why I say that, friends, is because there is a large portion of the Christian church who grabbed hold of some 20th century, early 20th century pulp theology 
that said that the church would be raptured out of the world before any suffering or tribulation that Jesus and John talked about ever would come. And that's simply not true. Not the picture that we have here in the book of Revelation. John says that those who are faithful witnesses of Jesus will suffer. But they will never be overcome. In fact, it's through their humble, faithful witness that the kingdom of God will overcome, that the kingdom of God will be established right here among us on the earth for us to see and touch. Which means, my friends, that we have to get our hero stories straight. Why are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, why are they our heroes? Is it because they survived the furnace because they escaped death because they triumphed or is it because they were willing to die for their God that's the reason there was no promise that they would be spared but they stepped into that furnace anyway is that the point you make clear with your children That Jesus calls us to be faithful witnesses to him, even unto death? Who are our heroes today? I think it was John Ortberg who told the story of a a middle-aged Ethiopian named Medusi. Ethiopia at this time was under Marxist rule. Medusi was arrested for showing the Jesus film in his community, and he was put in prison a number of times because he wouldn't stop. Witnessing in the prison was forbidden because there could be 500 people in a room at the same time, but Medusi would just witness anyhow. And when the guards would catch him, they would beat him to a pulp, and then later they would come up to him and they would say, who is this Jesus that you are so willing to suffer for? Medusi had such a radiant faith that by the end of his term in prison, when the guards wanted to take a break, They would take the bullets out of their guns and they would give them to Medusi and he could watch the rest of the prisoners. The Ethiopian Christians called this prison the university because they said if if God wanted to grow up a great soul, that's where he would send them. Who are our heroes? I said earlier that these chapters of of Revelation, they ought to scare us a little, not because they're so strange and so weird, but because what we read here is so familiar. We see these signs all around us. I, I need to clarify that for just a moment because what I think is so familiar to us is the idea that power will provide us some version of the kingdom. We've grown comfortable with that message, we've grown comfortable with that rhetoric. Some of us have even adopted it completely. But while we are familiar with the ways of power, we seem less and less familiar with the ways of sacrifice and the ways of martyrdom, with the ways of the Lamb, the ways of offering ourselves totally and completely in the service of our God. And it's in this sense, friends, that we are out of step with the majority church around the world. 
For most Christians, witness is a costly thing, and yet they do it. And that's what we need to see also in the book of Revelation. It's not just, it's not just the monsters and the horses and all that kind of thing. We need to see the martyrs. We need to see Antipas from the church of Pergamum who was faithful in his witness to Jesus Christ to the point of death. We need to see him. He's got to be our hero. We need to see the martyrs dressed in white before the throne. Countless numbers of them who would not deny Jesus Christ. They are our brothers. They are our sisters. They are our heroes. The seal of God, friends, is a very real thing. The robes of white are very real. But so is the great tribulation. And those who bear his seal will indeed wear white robes. They will indeed sing songs of joy and triumph. No one can ever take that away from you or from me. But they can threaten to take your home. They can threaten to take your job, your pension, your reputation, your family, your very life. But don't be afraid. Because there is one who is worthy of all of that. He's worthy of all that you have, of all that you are. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have been gracious to us. Lord, there have been times when we have missed the call to stand up, the call to reject the ways of power and the ways of the world and to confess the way of Jesus and to confess Jesus himself, the Lamb who was slain so that we might have life. We pray that the next time that opportunity comes, be it this afternoon, be it tomorrow or next week, the Lord, we know it will come. We pray that you will give us courage. We pray that you would give us faith. We pray that you would surround us with that great cloud of witnesses those who stand before the throne, those who wear their robes of white, that we may be encouraged to stand with those who have gone the full distance in this race. You have sealed us. For that we give you thanks. May we live out of the comfort that comes. That seal, sealed in your grace, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.